was uh, Sadhu Om singing the refrain and verse 4 of, um, of Akshara Manamalai, which is the verse I'm going to be talking about today. Um, this verse uh, consists of two short sentences. Um, the first sentence is, Aruka ene andane. Aruka means for whom. Ene uh, means me. It's a it's a very typical uh, in in the birth in in Tamil verses. Um, often words are contracted. Like "ne" actually has a double n, but uh, one of the n's is dropped for poetic purposes. That occurs in many many verses um, of Bhagavans, and it's very common in Tamil poetry. And the third word is "andane." which means um, um, uh, you took charge. So aruka ene andane means for whom did you take charge of, of me? Um, that in me is that ene. So for whom did you take charge of me? And the second sentence is ahatridil uh, akilam baritadum arunachala. Ahatridil means if you um, if you reject or banish or abandon, me is understood. Um, akilam, akilam means all, the whole. It refers here to the whole world, meaning the pe all the people of the world, baritidam, will blame or ridicule or revile. And again, you is understood. Um, so the, the meaning of the whole verse is Arunachala, for whom did you, for whom or for whose sake did you take charge of me? If you reject, banish or abandon me, the whole world will blame, ridicule or revile you. The most important word in this uh, verse, which I will spend quite a lot of time explaining, is andane. I have translated it as you took charge of me. It is... Um, a second person uh, singular past tense form of a verb whose basic form is al. This is a verb which in its various forms, Bhagavan uses frequently in Aksharamalai and in other songs of Arunachastuti Panchakam. So it is an extremely important word, but it's a word for which there's no adequate English equivalent. Um, so I will try to explain it as best I can. The uh, Tamil lexicon, which is the most um, comprehensive and complete uh, uh, dictionary of Tamil, defines all as, it defines it variously as 
to rule, reign over, or govern, to receive or accept as a protege, to control or manage as a household, and to cherish or maintain. So as these definitions suggest, Arl combines within itself two principal meanings, namely on the one hand, to rule, control, govern, or manage, and on the other hand, to cherish, care for, take care of, or take loving responsibility for the welfare and protection of. So I translate it as to take charge, in the sense that a caring adult may take charge of an orphan child, meaning that they lovingly take full responsibility for the welfare, care, protection, and upbringing of the child. It can also be translated as to take possession of or to take as one's own, in the sense that a bridegroom takes his bride as his own, meaning that he takes full responsibility for protecting and taking care of her in every way. So this is a this is a very beautiful word and an extremely important word in 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 Bhagavad, in particularly in Aranachas Dutipanchikam, um, and it is very. As I will go on to explain, it is very closely connected with surrender. It is, we can say, the, the other side of the same coin. Um, that is, we, we surrender ourselves to God. That means we uh, hand over charge of ourselves to God, and he takes charge of us. So we hand over full responsibility. We, we, we entrust ourselves to his care, and he takes care of us. He takes full responsibility for us. But... He will take full responsibility of us to the extent to which we are willing to surrender ourselves to him. So long as we want to be in charge of ourselves, so long as we want to fulfill our desires um, using our mind, speech, and body, he gives us the freedom to do so, um, as I will go into explain in more detail. Um, there are many words in Tamil that are derived from this uh, verb al. One of these, one of the words that is derived from it is andavan, which means he who has taken charge or he who has taken as his own or taken possession of. And it is therefore a term that is used to refer to God. So one of the one of the most frequently used words in Tamil to refer to God is andavan. Um, there are many words in Tamil for God, but this is one that is often used in, in devotional literature because of its connection with this, because it is a, a, a composite noun derived from this verb. Um, since God is the real nature of ourself, in other words, he's Atmasurupa, the real nature of ourself, he loves us as himself. So he is always lovingly taking care of us. However, he never obstructs our freedom of will and action, which is what Bhagavan used to call Icha Kriya Swatantra. Icha means uh, will or liking, Kriya means action, and Swatantra means freedom or independence. So he, Bhagavan, uh, God will never obstruct our freedom of will and action. Why? Because our real nature is infinitely free. So even when we rise as ego and thereby limit ourselves as a, a, a finite person, 
our freedom is limited, but never entirely lost. So we always have a certain uh, degree of uh, freedom. That freedom is uh, most uh, that, that the basic form of that freedom. We have the freedom of will. We can we can want whatever we want to want. Nothing can force us to want what we don't want or force us to not want what we, what we do want. We have that basic freedom of will. We also have, uh, to a certain extent, a freedom of action. That is, we are free to act according to our will. If we desire something, we are free to uh, make effort to achieve that thing. We are not free to achieve it unless it, we, are, we are destined to experience it. That is, we cannot experience anything that is not according to our prarabdha, that is, that has not been preordained. But we are free to want to, we are free to want things and we are free to try for them, whether or not they are, uh, we are destined to experience them. If we are destined to experience them, we will experience them. If we're not destined to experience, we won't experience. But we have the freedom of will and action. Um, so this is, the, this is a basic uh, freedom. This is because our real nature is infinitely free. So when we rise as ego, we are seemingly, even the limitation is not real, but we are seemingly limiting ourselves. We were one infinite, uh, eternal, indivisible Brahman, and now have now limited ourselves as this little person who is limited in time, born at a certain time, will die at a certain time, limited in space, occupies um, five or six feet of, uh, of, uh, of length and uh, a certain amount of width in space. We occupy very little, a tiny fraction of uh, space and a tiny fraction of, um, uh, of time. And we take this little person to be ourselves, whereas in fact what we actually are is the infinite whole. As the infinite whole, we have unlimited freedom because there's, since there's nothing other than ourselves, there is nothing that could limit our freedom in any way. But when we rise as ego, obviously our freedom is, is limited, particularly our freedom of action. Though we, uh, our freedom of will is greater than our freedom of action, but uh, both are limited because we are limited. That is, what is limited cannot uh, experience what is unlimited. Our real freedom is unlimited, but it seems to be limited. So, um, this is um, this is a a problem in all theology and all religions. They talk about this thing about uh, God's will and the freedom of uh, the will of the individual. How these two can be reconciled and so on. In in Bhagavan's teaching, they're very easily reconciled because God is nothing other than our actual self, our own real nature. So He is infinitely free. We are free. In our real nature, we are infinitely free. We are, we are, but and even when we limit ourselves, we are still free, but obviously our freedom is limited. So God or guru will never obstruct our freedom. So we always have that freedom to use our will and uh, to use our will as we as we will, as we want, and to use our the three instruments of action, namely mind, speech, and body, we're also free to use them as we want, but obviously there are limits. We, we cannot do everything we want to do. 
um, I may like to fly in the bird like a, in the sky like a bird, but I can't do so because there are physical limitations. So there are limits on our freedom of action. There's no limit on our freedom of will. We can want whatever we want, however impossible it is. Um, so we have that freedom. So so long. So he. So therefore, though he is always lovingly taking care of us in all respects, we fail to recognize this so long as we misuse our freedom of will to attend to things other than ourselves. That is, God is always shining in our heart as I, but we are ignoring his presence within us by attending to other things. So we, we fail to recognize the fact that he is taking care of us in every way possible, down to the minutest detail. All of our spiritual needs, all of our material needs, everything is being taken care of by him. If we, if we understood this, we would, surrender, we would be, happily surrender ourselves to him, because obviously he knows how to take care of us much better than we take, know how to take care of ourselves. But because our attention is going outwards, we fail to recognize that he is there shining in our heart as I and taking care of us in every way. So we will, we will recognize how much he is taking care of us only to the extent to which we surrender ourselves to him, to the extent to which we hand over charge to him, we will recognize, or oh, he's... Even when I was when I usurped, when I was misusing my freedom, even then he was taking such a perfect care of, of me. Why? Why does God take such good care of us? Because he doesn't see us as other than himself. He loves us as himself. Because we are nothing other than himself. What we actually are is nothing other than himself. So he sees us as we actually are, namely as himself. Whereas we see ourselves as this little person. Um, everything other than ourself is a vishaya. Vishaya means object or phenomenon. So our inclinations or vasanas to seek happiness in and therefore attend to such things are called vishaya vasanas. The more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vishaya vasanas, the stronger they become. And hence, under their sway, our mind is constantly rushing outwards with great enthusiasm, seeking happiness or satisfaction in the experience of vishayas. Allowing ourselves to be swayed by our vishaya vasanas in this way is a misuse of our freedom of will, our ichyasvatantra. And that in turn leads to, because we misuse our freedom of will, we consequently misuse our freedom of action, kriyasvatantra. So long as we misuse our freedom of will in this way, we, we never turn our attention back within to see what we actually are. So we fail to recognize that God is ever existing and shining blissfully in our heart as our own real nature, Swarupa. And hence we are blinding ourselves to the fact that he is meticulously taking care of us in every possible way. Therefore, it is only to the extent to which we surrender our will and thereby uh, and are thereby willing to abide by his will, but we begin to recognize the extent to which he is lovingly taking care of us and all our needs. By surrendering ourselves to him, we are handing over charge and possession of ourselves to him. 
So he takes charge and possession of us to the extent to which we surrender ourselves to him. This is why I said earlier but that this verb al, which means to take charge or take possession of or take as his own, uh, this is the this is the other the other side of, of surrender. That is our our responsibility is to surrender ourselves to him. His responsibility is to take charge of us. He will always take charge of us, but to the extent to which we are willing to hand over charge to him. <clears throat> that is, though he is always lovingly caring for us, he takes complete control of our life only to the extent to which we are willing to surrender our will uh, to him. Therefore, his alavadu, or taking charge of us as his own, and our surrendering ourselves to him are two sides of the same coin. Since he is always willing to take charge of us, we must be equally willing to surrender and thereby hand over charge of ourselves to him. Because until we surrender ourselves to him, we're in effect obstructing the flow of his grace. Since he will never deny us the freedom to use our will in whatever way we wish. Um, it may seem, therefore, that his taking charge of us is dependent on our surrendering ourselves to him. This is true to a certain extent, but it's not my entire picture, because it is only by his grace that we become willing to surrender ourselves to him. That is, the nature of ego is to be always going out, grasping things other than itself. So surrendering ourselves to him is going against the very nature of ego. Surrendering ourselves to him is our real nature, but it's going against our ego nature. So, um, so we will not surrender ourselves to him without his help. We need the help of his grace. Long before we began to surrender ourselves or even thought of surrendering ourselves, his grace was working in our heart, preparing the ground. And in that well-prepared ground, he has now planted the seed of love for him. So it is only after he has planted and nurtured this seed that we begin to experience the inclination, the liking to surrender ourselves to him. Therefore, the full responsibility for his taking charge of us as his own lies with him, as he implies in verse 14 of Akram life. What he says in verse 14, this is a, a very beautiful verse. Auve pol enokun arle tandene aluvadunganan aronachala. Auve pol means like a mother. Enoku un arle tandu, giving your arl, your grace, or your kindness, or your love to me like a mother. Ene aluvadu un kadan aronachala. Taking charge of me as your own is your responsibility, your duty. So Bhagavan is putting the full burden on Aranatcha. It's your duty to take charge of me. Um, but of course, he, he will take charge only to the extent we surrender to him. But even to surrender to him, we can surrender to him only to the extent to which he gives us the love to do so. So ultimately, the driving force 
is him. That is why it is his duty to take uh, charge of us as his own, like a mother whose natural duty is to lovingly take care of her child as her own. But it is nevertheless our duty to surrender ourselves completely to him. As he makes clear, for example, in the 12th paragraph of Nana, what he says in the 12th paragraph is, Kadavalum guruvum unmail verala. God and Guru are in truth not different. Puli vayil patadu evaru tirumbado. That means just as what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger will not return or will not escape. Abvare, uh, likewise, Guruvin aral pavail patabagal. Avaral Rakshika Padavare Andri Orukalum Kaivira Pada. It's a very, very great assurance Bhagavan gives us. Likewise, those who have been caught in the look or glance of Guru's grace will never be forsaken, but will surely be saved by him. So Bhagavan gives us a very great assurance here. His grace is. We have fallen prey to his, uh, we have been caught in the, in the look of his grace. So now he will never abandon us. He will certainly save us. However, Bhagavan adds a very important caveat here, a proviso. Eininum guru katya varipadi tabaradu nadikavendum. Nevertheless, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path that Guru has shown. That is, he will do everything to save us, but we must do our little part. We must be willing to surrender ourselves to him because he won't, he won't force salvation on us. He won't force liberation on us because what is liberation? What is salvation? It is, it is annihilation of ego. So he will not annihilate ego until we, this ego, are willing to give ourselves to him and to ask him, you annihilate me. So we, the willingness on our part is necessary. That willingness is, is expressed in our surrender. So Guru Katya Varipadi, Vari, the path that Guru has shown is to surrender ourselves entirely to him. And we can surrender ourselves to him only by being so keenly self-attentive that we do not give even the least room in our heart to the rising of any thought about anything else. As, as Bhagavan explains in the very next sentence, that's in the, in the first, what I read earlier is the 12th paragraph of Nana, in the first sentence of the 13th paragraph, after saying, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path shown by Guru. Then in the next sentence, he explains what is that path very, very beautifully. That path is a path of surrender, and we can surrender ourselves completely only by clinging to self-attentiveness, as he makes clear in this sentence. What he says in this sentence is, Anma Chintane Tabira, Vera Chintane Kalambavadaku, Satram Idum Kodamal, Abmanishta Paranai Iripte, Tane Isanaku Alipadam. The main clause in this sentence is Abmanishta Paranai Iripte. Uh, that means being as Abmanishta Param, one who is firmly establishes oneself. That alone is Tane Isanaku Alipadam, giving oneself to God. So how do we remain 
as Atmanishta Paran? How do we remain established as, as ourselves? How do we remain as we actually are? That is uh, indicated in the adverbial clause, uh, which comes at the beginning of the sentence. That adverbial clause means giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any chintana, any thought, except Atma Chintana. Atma Chintana literally means thought of oneself. It implies self-contemplation or self-attentiveness. So the implication here is that we need to be so keenly self-attentive that we thereby give not even the slightest room to the rising of any other thought. Bhagavan never, um, never asked us to avoid thinking, because if we try to avoid thinking, our attention is on the thought. We're trying to not think. We, we, we can't not think. We, we can't try to not think without thinking about thinking. So it's, uh, it's uh, as he sometimes used to say, it's like a doctor who gives a medicine saying, take this medicine, but it will work provided you don't think of a monkey whenever you take it. So take this medicine, but don't think of a monkey. If the doctor instructs like that, Every time we want to take the medicine, we'll remember the doctor's instruction, or oh, I shouldn't think of a monkey, and we'll be thinking of a monkey. So the, the, the practical doctor will not tell us not to think of a monkey. The practical doctor will say, whenever you take this medicine, think of an elephant. If you're thinking of an elephant, then you're not thinking of a monkey, and you can take the medicine. Likewise, Bhagavan didn't, uh, never asked us to stop thinking. That is the way of yoga. Yoga is chitta vritti naroda. Yoga is the, is the uh, stopping or the curbing or the restraint of the activity of the mind. That is not Bhagavan's way. Bhagavan said, don't worry about thoughts. In the sixth paragraph, he says, however many thoughts rise, what does it matter? Bhagavan said, all you need to do is attend to yourself. That's a very nice trick, because if we attend to ourselves, we are not attending to other things. And if we're not attending to thoughts, they can't rise. Thoughts are nothing but the attention that we give to things other than ourselves. So if we pay all our attention to ourselves, thoughts won't rise. So that is what he means here by giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any thought except Atmachintana. We need to be so keenly self-attentive, we need to hold on to Atmachintana, the thought of ourself, or self-attentiveness so firmly, but we give no room for the rising of any other thought. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, ego subsides. So holding on to self-attentiveness, is itself giving ourselves to God? So this is the path that Bhagavan has shown us. This is how we can surrender ourselves to him. And to the extent to which we do so, we are handing over charge of ourselves to him. So he takes charge of us. That is all. He's always willing to take charge of us, but he will do so only when we willingly hand over charge of ourselves to him. Um, when we think of or attend to anything other than ourselves, we are turning our attention away from a God or Bhagavan as he actually is, uh, namely as the pure awareness that is always shining in our heart as, the as our own fundamental awareness I am. So we can give ourselves to, completely to him only by turning our entire attention back within 
to face his real nature, Swarupa, which is the real nature of ourself, Atma Swarupa, namely I am. The more we lovingly attend to him in our heart as I am, the more we as ego subside and sink back within, and the more we thereby open our heart to his grace. That is, so long as we are running outwards, allowing our attention to go outwards, we are, so to speak, uh, closing our heart to his grace. If we want to open our heart and to allow his grace to flood in, we need to turn back within. By turning back within, we subside and we allow his grace to flood our heart. Of course, the source from which his grace is coming is only from within our heart. But so long as we are looking outwards, it is as if we have closed our heart to his grace. Uh, so we are, by, by attending to anything other than ourselves, we are obstructing the work of his grace. If we want to let his work, his grace do its work without any obstruction, we need to surrender ourselves to him. And we can surrender ourselves to him only by clinging firmly to self-attentiveness. Because the very nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to other things, but to subside and, and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself as he expressed it very beautifully in verse 25 of Vuludunapadu, in which he describes ego as a formless phantom. And he says, grasping form, it comes into existence. Since ego is a formless phantom, grasping form means grasping things other than itself. So grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. So in this context, form means any object, any phenomena, anything other than ourselves is a form. So the very nature of ego is to be always grasping form. But then he says, if sought, it takes flight. That means if ego, instead of grasping things other than itself, tries to grasp itself, if it turns its attention back to see who am I, Autumpidicum, it will take flight, it will run away, because it has no, we, we seem to be ego only so long as we're attending to other things. When we attend to ourselves, there's no ego to be found. Is there anyone who's ever seen such a thing, a thing called ego? Obviously not. We seem to be ego only when we don't look at ourselves. When we look at other things, we seem to be ego. When we look at ourselves, there is no ego to be found. So the way to surrender this ego is to look at ourselves, to be self-attentive. So this is how we surrender ourselves to him. If we surrender ourselves to him, then he takes charge of us, um, takes complete charge of us, to the extent to which we surrender ourselves to him. So since he takes charge of us, um, oh, oh so, sorry, one, one other thing. How he takes charge of us, therefore, is by sowing and nurturing the seed of love for him in our heart, because it is only by the strength of such love that we can cling firmly to self-attentiveness, thereby overcoming the strength of our vishayabhasanas. His grace, therefore, works through us, and our being self-attentive is an essential part of his adult sale, his, the action or working of his grace. So uh, sometimes people say, um, which is more important, uh, grace or effort? Or can you achieve it by effort alone without grace? They have not understood the nature of effort or the nature of grace. Whatever effort we make to turn within and to surrender ourselves, 
we are making only under the sway of grace. It's only grace that gives us the love to do so. That is the very nature of ego is to be always grasping things other than itself. So, so long as we rely on ego, on the nature of ego, it will always be going outwards, always grasping things other than itself. So some power greater than ego alone can uh, loosen, make ego willing to let go of its hold on other things and uh, yield itself to, to him. That, that power is the power of grace, and that grace manifests in us in the form of love to surrender ourselves to him. So uh, ultimately, everything is being done by his grace. So since he takes charge of us only to the extent to which we have surrendered ourselves to him, and since he therefore takes complete charge of us only when our surrender to him becomes complete, his taking charge of us is often described as an event that takes place at a particular time. That is, though he's always, he's, he's always preparing the ground to take complete charge of us, it's only when we surrender ourselves to him completely that he takes charge of us completely. So it's described as an event in time. As Bhagavan describes it in verse 7 of Arunachal Navamani Malai, this verse is, to understand the full significance of this verb, al, taking charge, uh, this verse gives us a lot of clarity on what, what actually this, this verb signifies. This, this, this is one of the most beautiful verses, this verse 7 of, of Arunachal Navamani Malai. This is one of my very favorite verses. Anamalai adiyene. Andabandre Abiudal, Kondai Yenako Kureyondo, Kureyum Gunamum Nialal, Enne Nibatre, Ennuire, Ennum Eduvo Adusevai, Kane Yundran, Karalineil, Cardal Peruke Tarubaye. This is the verse of complete surrender. Um, what this verse means is, Anamale I, that's addressing Anamale. Anamale is the name of Aranachala. So Anamale I means Anamale or Aranachala. Adiene Ande Andre Aviudal Kondai. That's the first sentence. The very day you took charge of me, a slave, you took possession of soul and body. Um, Adiene is a very nice word that is often used in Tamil, um, Tamil uh, uh, devotional literature. That is, uh, Adiya means, means a slave in the sense of we, we willingly become slave of God. We, we give ourselves to God. So, so Adiene means a slave or a devotee or a, a servant. Um, Adiyain is a first-person singular form of that uh, word. So it's a composite noun that means uh, uh, I, a slave. That's Adiyain. This is an accusative form of that composite noun. So it means me, a slave, or me, your slave. So the very, the very day, Andre means the very day, the very moment you took charge of me, and, uh, and is a form of this verb, al. Adiene Andre Avi Udal Kondai 
you took my avi means soul and uh, udal means body. You took possession of my soul and body. In other words, you took complete possession of me. You took complete charge of me. And then in the next sentence, he asked, enoku or kureyondo? Is there any deficiency for me? That the verb, the, the noun kurei means, uh, in this context, it means an imperfection, a defect, a deficiency, want, dissatisfaction, or grievance. So, do I, is there anything I have to complain about? Is there any grievance? Is there anything lacking? When you've taken full possession of me, what is there for me to complain about? And then in the next sentence, he says, Kureyum gunamum niyalal That literally means um gunam, that is defects and qualities, niyalal, uh, except you, I do not think of them. What that implies is um, uh, since, since the the imperfections and the good qualities cannot exist independent of you, or they cannot be other than you. I do not think of them, but only of you. That is the, the middle word, in, the middle phrase in this sentence, niyalal, except you, can, connects with both the first half and the second half. So connected with the first half, defects and qualities do not exist uh, independent of you or other than you. Therefore, other than that you, I do not think of them. I think, in other words, I think only of you. I don't think of a, let me be the worst sinner or the greatest saint. I don't care. I don't think about me. I think only about you. Because all my good qualities and bad qualities, my defects and my virtues cannot exist independent of you. So I think only of you. Um, this is the attitude of complete surrender. So here Bhagavan is showing the oneness of him taking charge of us and our surrendering ourselves to him. And then he, he goes on to say, Enuire, uh, Enuire means my very life. Um, it, it implies uh, my, my, my real nature. Enuire, enam eduvo adusevai. That literally means whatever be thought, do that. In other words, whatever you, whatever you think of doing, whatever you want to do, do that. In other words, your will be done. You do whatever you think is fit. I'm not here to question you why, why you did like this, why you didn't do like that. You do whatever you, your will be done. Complete surrender. Um, and then finally, in the last line, he says, Kaneyundran karalineil kardal peruke tarvaye. He addresses Aranacha. In the previous sentence, he addresses Aranacha as Enuire, my very life. This sentence, he addresses Aranacha as Kan. Kan means I. So his, I can be, we can take this. It implies two things. One, when you, when you refer to someone as Kanne, if you refer to, if you are in love with someone, you refer to them as Kanne, you're implying that they're more beloved to you than your own eyes. Um, so Kanne has the sense of my beloved. It also has a, a still deeper meaning. Kan is often used by Bhagavan as a metaphor 
uh, for awareness. Kan means I in the sense of a physical I. That is a metaphor for awareness. So it kanne also implies my own real awareness. In other words, what is always shining in my heart as I am, that is Arunachala. That, so he's addressing Arunachala as, as Kanne, which has this double meaning, my beloved and my own awareness. And then he says, uh, Undran Karalinail. Um, uh, Undran means your, Karal means feet, Inail means for your two, uh, your pair of feet. Your pair of feet that in. In devotional literature, um, we often talk about the feet of God, but the feet of God and God are, of course, one and the same. It's not, uh, we're not referring to a part of God's anatomy. The reason we talk of uh, surrendering to his feet is his feet are the lowest part, that the feet are the lowest part of a person. When we are, when we are prostrating ourselves, when we are surrendering ourselves, we are taking refuge at his feet. So his feet is a is a is a metaphor for God Himself. So uh, for your pair of feet, cardal peruke taruvaye. Cardal means love. Peruke means uh, a flood or overflow or fullness or abundance or an increasing intensity of love for your pair of feet. So oh my beloved, oh my very own awareness, do whatever you will. But just give me a, a, a flood of love for your pair of feet. So in the state of surrender, if at all we are to pray for anything, the only thing we can pray for is more and more love. Because it's only by, his, by the love that he has given us. Here Bhagavan is clearly indicating it is, it is for Aaron actually to give us love. We, whatever love we have for him is given only by him. So it's for him to give us that love, and only to the extent to which we have love for him will we be willing to surrender ourselves to him. And only to the extent to which uh, we surrender ourselves to him does he take full charge of us. So this verse is such a such a deeply meaningful verse and such a beautiful verse. That's so much, I mean, it's a, the, the words in Tamil. You, you, uh, one can't read this Tamil uh, verse without. It melting one's heart. It's such a beautiful verse. Um, that is the anamle, the very day you took charge of me, your slave, you took possession of my soul and body. Is there anything for me to complain about now? Since my defects and qualities don't exist other than you, I won't think of them. I don't think of them, but only of you. Uh, um, my my very soul, my very life. Whatever you want, do that. Only thing I ask, my beloved, is just give me a, a flood of love for your feet. That is never, give me an, un, an, an unending torrent of love for your feet. Um, because only by that love that he, the love that he gives us is the means by which he, uh, he saves us. So whatever little love we have for him is his grace working in us, his grace is the love that he has for us, that manifests in us in the form of love for him. So that love, whatever love we have for him, is given only by him. It, cannot, it doesn't come from ego, it comes only from him, from the original source from which ego rose, 
namely our own real nature, from that same source, this love arises, and only by means of this love can we surrender ourselves and thereby merge back in him. Um, <clears throat> Aaron always has partial control of our mind, speech, and body, because he has to make them do whatever actions they need to do to facilitate the unfolding of our prarabdha, as Bhagavan implies in the first sentence of the note that he wrote for his mother. Avarabha prarabdha prakaram adakarnavan angangilindu artavipan. That literally means, according to their, their prarabdha, he who is for that being there, there will cause to dance. Um, the first there, there means of each of them, according to the prarabdha of each individual. Um, he who is for that, Adakarnavan, that implies God or Guru, who is the one who ordains the prarabdha, uh, who allots our prarabdha. Uh, he who is for that, being there, there means being in each place, implying being in the heart of each one of us, Artavipam will make them act. So, uh, though we use our mind, speech, or bod and body to act according to our will, they are also being used by him to make us do whatever actions are necessary uh, in order for us to experience our destiny. So we, we, we are not to try and distinguish which actions people often ask. How do we know whether this action is according to his will or according to our will? If we, any action that we do under the sway of our vasanas is to that extent under, uh, is, is to that extent according to our will. It may also be according to his will. If it's according to his will, it will produce a, it, it will seem to produce a result because it, that's our prarabdha. If it's not according to his will, it, though we do the action, we're not going to get what we want from it. So um, he. He is using, he, he has a partial control, that is, he has the upper hand over our mind, speech, and body. He, we can't, when he makes us do whatever is necessary for us to do, in order to experience our prarabdha, we can't resist that. We can't avoid doing whatever, whatever we have to do to experience our prarabdha. However, so though he has partial control, so long as we retain even the least inclination or liking to use our mind, speech, or body as instruments for achieving the fulfillment of our desires, he allows us to do so. And hence, he does not take complete control of them. Only when we surrender ourselves entirely to him does he take complete charge of us. And taking complete charge of us entails taking complete control of our mind, speech, and body, as he implies in the first sentence of this verse. Anamalai adiene andavandre abiyudal. Anamalai, the very day you took charge of me, your slave, you took possession of my soul and body. So he will take complete control of our mind, speech, and body. Only when we surrender ourselves, when we hand them over to him, he will take charge of them. When he thus takes charge of us, there is no separate I left to have any imperfection or defect or to feel any deficiency, need, want, dissatisfaction or grievance, as he implies in the second sentence of this verse. 
Enoku or Kureyondo? Is there now any Kure, any imperfection, defect, deficiency, grievance, want, dissatisfaction for me? No, it's not. I mean, that's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer is I have that. There's, a, there's no one to complain about anything because there's no I remaining because he's taking complete charge of us. We surrender ourselves complete to him. He's taking complete charge of us. If at all there, there were even the slightest trace of a, any ego remaining, which would be the case only if his taking charge of us were not yet complete, by its surrender, it would have been attenuated to such an extent, but it would not be concerned at all about its defects or qualities because its whole attention would be riveted only on the one thing that actually exists, namely Arunachala himself, as he implies in the third sentence, kureyam gunamam niyalal enenivatre. Uh, um, as I say, that literally means defects and qualities, except you, I do not think of them. So it implies since uh, the defects and qualities uh, cannot exist independent of, that, of you, I do not think of them, but only of you. Um, being so completely absorbed in loving contemplation on our natural alone, a devotee in such a state would not have even the slightest desire for anything other than all, an all-consuming flood of love for him. And hence, he, he, uh, such a devotee would have no concern whatsoever about whatever else may happen, as he implies in the last two sentences of this verse. Ennuire en nammedvo adusevai, oh my very life, Whatever you, whatever you think of, whatever you want, do that, uh, do that alone. Kaneyundran karalineil kardal peruke daruvaye. Oh, my beloved, give me only a flood of love for your pair of feet. Um, so that that is the that uh, that is the this is the a verse expressing complete surrender. But he begins this description of a, the state of complete surrender by saying, the very day you took charge of me. So it's only, he will take charge of us only when we surrender ourselves to him. But we can surrender ourselves to him only when he takes complete charge of us. So it, it may seem to be paradoxical, but it, it's not at all paradoxical because even before we surrender ourselves completely to him, he's preparing the ground. So his grace is doing everything. So finally, he, when we are ready for it, he gives us the all-consuming love that enables us to surrender ourselves to him, and thereby he takes complete charge of us. Um, there's a verse in Guru Kavai. I can't remember exactly the exact meaning of the verse, but it's something to the effect. Um, it's an, Bhagavan is giving an answer to those people who, that sometimes people ask, um, which happens first or which is the cause? Is it because, um, because, uh, um, because Jiva surrenders itself to Shiva, but Shiva takes over? Or that she is it because Shiva enters the heart that the Jiva holds hands over control, um, something like that. I can't remember. It's, it's not exactly that, but it's something to that effect. Bhagavan said to people who ask such questions, we have no answer. 
because the two things, Shiva entering our heart and Jiva surrendering itself to Shiva are not two different things. They are one and the same things. That is, our surrendering ourselves to him and him taking charge of us are one and the same thing. But the driving force behind that is only his grace. Only his love can enable us to surrender ourselves to him and uh, thereby enable him to or give him permission to take complete charge of us. That is only when we surrender ourselves to him, are we giving our consent, are we allowing him to take complete charge of us. So in this verse, Bhagavan clearly implies that his taking charge of us and our surrendering ourselves entirely to him are as inseparable as two sides of a sheet of paper. He will take charge of us only to the extent to which we are willing to surrender ourselves completely to him. But we will be willing to surrender ourselves completely to him only to the extent that his grace occupies our entire heart. As he said in the previous verse, uh, entering my heart. Um, uh, so his grace has to enter and occupy our entire heart in the form of intense and all-consuming love for him. Though he's taking charge of us and are surrendering to ourselves to him, each gives rise to an increase of the other, being two aspects of the same single process of grace. Ultimately, his lovingly taking charge of us as his own is the cause and our surrendering ourselves to him is the effect. Because grace is the infinite love that he has for us as himself. And whatever love we have to surrender ourselves to him is born only in the womb of his infinite love for us. Um, that's why he says, like a mother, it's your, it's your duty to give me your, like a mother giving me your love, it's your duty to take, um, to, to take, uh, ta taking, uh, taking charge of me is your duty. So it is, that is, but whatever love we have for him is born only in the womb of his, the infinite love that he has for us. So he is truly our mother. He's our mother, our father, our God, our guru. He's everything. Without him, salvation is impossible because the very nature of ego is to be always going outwards. So until he gives us that love to surrender ourselves to him, we, we, we would never we would never be willing to surrender ourselves to him. So that willingness to surrender can come only from him. Therefore, though it's necessary for us to surrender ourselves to him by persistently trying to cling firmly to self-attentiveness, the more we thereby surrender ourselves to him, the more clearly we will recognize that the driving force behind all our efforts to surrender is only his grace. And hence, when we have surrendered ourselves entirely to him, we will clearly see that we have truly done nothing and he has done everything. That is why great saints like Manika Vasaka and Murugana, they, they will say after attaining that, they will say, I didn't do anything. He came and took possession of me. He came and took complete charge of me. I didn't do anything because they recognize that my, my, they may have done so much strenuous um, uh, 
I mean, they may have been meditating with so much love on him, but they don't see that as their doing. They see that entirely as his doing because he is who, who can give us the love to meditate on him with love? Only he can. So the, whatever little love we have for him comes only from him. Um, however, though he is ultimately the one who does everything, he does it without actually doing anything because everything happens as it's meant to happen by his grace and grace is his very nature. So just by being what he, Bhagavan explains it beautifully in the 15th paragraph of, of uh, Nana, in which he gives the analogy of uh, the, everything happening of, on earth in the presence of the sun and the a needle moving in the presence of a magnet, like that, he doesn't do anything, but in his mere, by the special nature of his mere presence, his mere being, everything happens as it's meant to happen. So grace and love, it is very being. So he doesn't have to do anything to bestow his grace on us. Just by being what he is, he does everything. Um, therefore, he does everything that needs to be done just by being himself. And by being thus, he unfailingly draws us back into the heart, thereby making us be as we actually are, namely as himself. The process of grace is therefore what um, this process of grace is therefore what he refers to as Alavudu, taking charge of us. So he takes complete charge of us, not by doing anything, but just by being what he actually is. Because what he actually is, is the infinite ocean of all-consuming love. So whatever little love we have for him can come only from him. He's the source of all love. So, till now, I've I spent just explaining this one word, this one word that occurs in this fourth verse, Al, but it's such an important word, but is not only in this, I mean, we cannot understand this verse or many other verses of um like and Arunachal Stutipanchikam adequately without understanding the, me, the, the full meaning of the, the full significance of this verb, Al. It's such an important verb. Um, that Bhagavan uses so often. Um, so now coming back to this verse, the, the fourth verse, the main verse I'm talking about, as I explained earlier, Araka means for whom? It's a dative form of the interrogative pronoun R, which means who. So it means to whom. Um, the plain dative form of this pronoun is Araku, which means either to whom or for whom. But with the addition of the suffix R, that makes the dative mean specifically for rather than to. So Araku means to whom or for whom. Araka particularly means for whom. And it also implies that in this context, when he says for whom, it implies for whose sake. Um, and as I, I explained already, the NA is a poetic abbreviation of NA. That is, a, uh, it's a double N, but one of the Ns is dropped for poetic reasons, um, which is a singular accusative form of the first person pronoun. So it means me. And as I've been explaining at great, uh, in great length, Andane is a second person singular past tense form of Al. So it means you took charge or you took charge as your own, or you took possession of me. 
therefore, the first sentence of this verse, Arukabane Andane, means for whom did you take charge of me? Thereby implying, for whose sake did you take charge of me? When he takes charge of any devotee, for whom does he do so? If we consider this, there are three possibilities. He could do so for himself, he could do so for the devotee, or he could do so for others. So let us consider these three possibilities. Does he do so for his own sake? No, he, obviously he doesn't, because he's the one infinite whole upon which nothing exists. So he does not lack anything. And hence he does not, he is not in need of anything, and therefore he stands to gain nothing for himself by taking charge of any devotee. So it's not for his sake that he's doing it. Um, therefore, he need not and does not do anything for himself. So does he do it for the sake of the devotee? Yes, he does, at least from the perspective of a devotee, because by rising and standing as ego, we, the devotee, have been courting endless suffering of various kinds. So out of his infinite love for us, he comes to rescue us, this ego, but uh, from our own ignorance and uh, folly by swallowing us entirely in the clear light of his own pure awareness, I am. So he does, in a sense, do it. In this sense, he does do it for us. Does he also do it for the sake of others? Um, he certainly doesn't do it on the recommendation of anyone else or to please anyone else. But it could be said that he does so to enable others to see the greatness and infallible power of his grace, and thereby to encourage them to seek his grace with a heart yearning for salvation from the suffering of, of samsara, embodied existence. That is, Arunacha took Bhagavan as, as his own, um, took complete charge of Bhagavan as his own, uh, we can, in our view, he did it for our sake because by by seeing how he took Bhagavan, he took Bhagavan as his own, it gives us hope that he could, he will also take us as his own. So it, it gives us, uh, by by through Bhagavan's life, Arunacha has given us an example of how his grace works. Um, so this is to encourage us all. Um, However, though it is true from a certain perspective that Arunacha takes charge of each of his devotees for their own sake, and though it can be said that he also does so to encourage others, the ultimate truth is that he does not do so for any reason whatsoever, but because such is his nature. He does so because it's his nature to do so, not for this reason or that, for that reason. That is, since he is the first ocean of pure love, and that pure love is what is called grace. And since in his clear view, there's nothing other than himself, always bestowing his grace abundantly on each and every jiva is his very nature. If at all it seems that he is bestowing his grace more on some than on others, that is because each jiva receives his grace according to its own capacity to do so. Um, I think somewhere in Mahasha's gospel or somewhere it's recorded, someone was complaining to Bhagavan, um, why does not God give more grace or uh, something like that? Bhagavan says, grace is like the ocean. If you come to the ocean with a thimble, you'll get only a thimble full of water. If you come to the ocean with a bucket, 
you'll come with you'll you'll be able to get a bucket of water. If you come to the ocean and throw yourself in, you get the whole ocean. So it's all according to our capacity, whether to what extent we are willing to give ourselves to Him. To that extent, we benefit by His grace. So to borrow a very apt analogy given by Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. The rain of grace is always pouring equally on all. It's always a torrential downpour equally on all jivas. However, it runs off high places and gathers in low places. The higher ego rises, the more proud we are. Um, I am a great devotee. I have got God's grace. The more we rise proudly, the less we are able to retain and benefit from the abundant grace that is always pouring on us. Just as a high mound can hold only a small fraction of the abundant rainwater that is pouring on it. That is, rainwater pouring on a mound, that the soil in that mound will absorb a little, but only a little. Whereas uh, the deeper ego sinks back into the heart, the more it will drown in and be overwhelmed by the abundant grace that accumulates within it. Just as in a deep depression, in a hollow in the ground, it's, uh, such, a, such a hollow or, de or deep depression will be completely immersed in the abundant rainwater that accumulates within it. So the deeper, the, the, the deeper we sink, the more humble we are, the more we, the more we surrender ourselves to him, the more we subside and subside and subside, the more we will be benefited by his grace. It is not that his grace is partial, that he's giving more grace to some than to others. Some of us, by, by sinking low, we, to the extent to which we sink low, to the extent to which we subside back into the heart, to that extent do we um, drown in his grace. If we come to the ocean with a small thimble, we'll get only a small thimble. If we come with a bucket, we'll get a bucket. But what is the use of getting a bucket, a, a, a thimble full of water or a bucket full of water? And the whole ocean is there available to us. So let us throw ourselves in the ocean by surrendering ourselves completely. That is the, the import of this. Um, the ultimate aim of grace is eradication of ego, which is what Bhagavan describes as Aranatra taking complete charge of us. That is, he's taking complete charge of us. He takes complete charge of us only when we surrender ego to him. So what Bhagavan describes as him taking charge of us is a, is a synonym for eradication of ego. That is, him taking charge of us means he is eradicating ego. That is, we allow him to take charge of us to the extent to which we surrender ourselves to him. So though he is gradually taking charge of us to a greater and greater extent, he will take complete charge of us only when we surrender ourselves entirely to him, thereby allowing him to swallow us, uh, as, namely ego, in the, in the infinitely clear light of pure awareness, which is his own real nature. So we must be willing to give ourselves to him, and he will then swallow us entirely. As he says in a later verse, in verse 27, Sakalam and virangum kadiroli yinamana jalajamalati daranachala. Sun of, of bright rays, but swallows everything. A blossom, the lotus of my, of, of my heart, my mind. 
um, that in me, give me that complete love so that I can surrender myself to him, to, to you. So the same, and what he prays in verse 27, he also prays the same in the first verse of uh, Arunacha Pancharatnam. So he swallows everything, but only to the extent to which we give surrender ourselves to him. Um, so that, that is the, the, the first sentence of the verse. Now coming to the second sentence, if during this process of his taking charge of us, if he were to reject or abandon any of us, any of his devotees, that would be worthy of immense pari. Pari means blame or censure or ridicule. As he says in the next sentence, uh, uh, if you reject me, the whole world will blame you, Arunachala. In which ahatridil means if you reject, expel, banish, or abandon me. Akilam means the whole, uh, all, or entire universe. So in this context, it implies all the people of the universe. But in particular, it refers to all devotees who with wholehearted faith in his grace have surrendered or are surrendering themselves to him. And baritidum uh, means will blame or ridicule or revile. Um, if a man enters the home of a young girl and entices her to elope with him and thereby abducts her and keeps her captive in his home, as Bhagavan said that Arunacha had done in the previous verse, Arunachala, entering my home or my mind, forcibly carrying me away or dragging me out or attracting me to yourself, keeping me prisoner in the cave of your heart is what a wonder. That means what, what a wonder of your grace. Um, so Arunachala has already abducted him, has already eloped, uh, enticed him to elope, enticed her to elope with him. So if he then rejects her, banishing her from his home and care, instead of marrying her as he had led her to expect he would, that would be an act of immense shame for which the whole world would blame, ridicule and revile him. Equally shameful would it be if Arunachala were to reject or abandon any devotee after he had seemingly taken charge of her, because it would be a betrayal of the hope that he had raised in her heart. As he likewise implies in verse 60, what he says in verse 60 is, Nesa milenukun asee kartane mo Arunachala. That means uh, Arunachala, Nesa milenukun, for me, uh, or to me who had no, who was devoid of love, Nesa means love. So I was devoid of love. So to me who was devoid of love, Un aseye kati, showing desire, that giving me a taste of the desire for you, who is completely devoid of love, nimosam sayadarul arunacha, without you cheating, be gracious. That is, our, we have been attracted to Arunacha. Why? Because though we were completely devoid of love for him, he gave us a little taste of that desire for him. So we, 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 some, we having tasted that intoxicating uh, 
the intoxicating taste of desire for him, we have been drawn to him. So he shouldn't now betray us. He shouldn't now cheat us. By that, the, the implication is, Arunacha, after showing me the intoxicating uh, taste of desire for you, after showing that to me, who by my very nature as ego was devoid of love for you, without or instead of you cheating me now by not giving yourself to me, be gracious by fulfilling this desire for you that you have planted in and nurtured in my heart. So it's he who has given us that desire for him, so he should fulfill that desire. Um, so if he doesn't do so, that will be a, a whole world will blame him, the whole world will vilify him. Um, so like several other verses of Aksharam Rai, in fact, like many other verses of Aksharam Rai, verses 4 and 60 are what, are called nind, what is called nindastuti. Uh, nindastuti means abusive, vilifying or rebuking praise, uh, which in the guise of blaming, finding fault with, accusing, abusing, vilifying, ridiculing or rebuking God, is a way of imploring and cajoling him to save us from ourselves and not abandon us to our own devices, which will surely lead us astray, trapping us forever in the delusive snare of ego. Uh, the, the implied meaning of this fourth verse, therefore, is a prayer imploring Arunachala not to abandon us with disdain, contempt or indifference after bringing us so far in this process of his gradually taking complete charge of us. That is, he brought us to this stage, he shouldn't now reject us. If he has been taking charge of us for our sake, it is sh uh, surely not due to any merit on our part. That is, we haven't done anything to deserve his grace, but only due to his causeless grace. So even if we now prove ourselves to be unworthy, undeserving of his grace, that is no reason for him to reject or abandon us, because at no time did he ever have any reason to suppose that we were ever worthy of his grace. None of us are worthy of his grace. His grace is grace precisely because we are never worthy of it. His grace is the infinite good. So it can, who can ever be worthy of it? His infinite love for us is called grace precisely because we can never in any way deserve or merit it. Moreover, if he has been taking charge of us, not only for our sake, but also for encouraging others to cling with devotion to his feet and thereby attain salvation, that is all the more reason for him not to reject or abandon us. Because if he were to do so, he would be betraying not only our trust in his grace, but also the trust of others. Therefore, if ever, if Arunacha were ever to reject or abandon any of his devotees, even the least and most unworthy among them, he would rightly be blamed for doing so. It is only by his infinite grace that we have been drawn to him. And by attracting us to himself, he has committed himself to a binding contract with us to save us from ourselves by taking complete charge of us in spite of all our defects and lack of any true love or merit. Therefore, ha having attracted us to himself, he is now duty-bound like a mother to complete the task 
he began from the very moment we first raised, rose his ego, namely to ensnare us gradually but unfailingly in the web of his grace, and thereby take complete charge of us by devouring us entirely in his clear light of pure awareness. Any failure on his part to do so would earn, earn him the pari, the blame, condemnation, and ridicule of the entire world. Therefore, in the next verse, he prays to Arunachala, if paritapu, escape, this, escape such blame, thereby implying that by eradicating ego and thereby taking charge of us entirely, he should complete this task of grace that he began so long before and whose final stages he commenced by making us think of him. Om namo bhagavate sri arunachala ramanaya <laughs> 